You're listening to Sascapes, a podcast featuring the stories of arts, culture, and heritage in Saskatchewan. is a community development specialist and the current mayor of Meacham, Saskatchewan. Flo works across Canada and in different parts of the world, specifically with Indigenous communities in Australia, Hawaii, Nunavut, and South America. She is a consultant, facilitator, trainer, and the author of 29 community self-help books. I'm Kevin Power. Talking with Flo Frank is the very definition of the word connection, and I love that. Idle conversation falls by the wayside quickly as we journey through the story. When all is said and done, that is who and what we are, our story. Flo speaks of fromness, the potential of our youth, the wisdom of elders, including the sage advice of her grandmother— at the end of your life, did you make a positive difference? Flo does what she loves and loves what she does and has already made a huge difference and intends on continuing that journey. We met in a rather public space and from time to time you'll hear folks passing by and many languages being spoken. Well, in a way, that just complements Flo's global perspective on life. I am with... The mayor of Meacham, Saskatchewan, Flo Frank. However, we're not in Meacham today. We've actually decided to rendezvous in a very decadent place called Manitou Beach, Saskatchewan, on a glorious, hot summer afternoon. And it's taken some doing, but we finally meet after some grand conversations by phone. Flo, thank you so much for coming along for the ride. Kevin, thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to meet you and a privilege to be one of your iPod guests. Oh, well, so where do we begin with you? Knowing already what I know, we've had a fabulous lunch together. It's, it's um, uh, my general question would be, so, tell me all about you, because you're, you're, there's very little that your life isn't touching on or that you're involved in right now. It's quite, it's quite something. But let's start out um, at simpler beginnings. You grew up in Saskatchewan, or no? Uh, no, I didn't actually. Uh, you know, I guess what you're asking, Kevin, is fromness. And uh, right. everybody's fromness, I think, is okay. a story in itself. And my fromness um, is a sort of a long little path. I was born on Algonquin Island, just outside of Toronto, mm. uh, which anyone who knows about uh, the Toronto Islands knows that that was a residential island that uh, was really quite amazing in its day. And we went from there up to Uranium City and... Uh, Edmonton, Alberta, and I've lived in British Columbia, and I've lived in a lot of different places. I work in a lot of different places. I came back to Saskatchewan uh, 18 years ago. So from this, you know, um, no, I didn't grow up here. 
I um, spent some of my life here, though. Your fromness is global. Mm. Yes, I, I would say that's true. <laughs> right. Um, and you love this province. You've traveled a lot, but there's something about coming back to this province that you really love. Yeah. I actually think Saskatchewan is one of the most amazing places on the planet. And having been to many of them, I say that not out of emotional soppiness, but more out of out of fact that Saskatchewan is without a doubt one of the most geographically beautiful places because it changes every two weeks. Yeah. You know, the sky changes every hour and the the ground changes every two weeks. But the people are amazing and there's a, there's a set of values or a way of being in this province that just feels like home. I love it completely. When did you settle in Meacham? Um, I actually moved to Meacham 18 years ago. Uh, it was a temporary move. I actually was writing a book. And um, I had a contract up in Yukon that was postponed for a year and decided that, well, what I would do is, is take that time and write a book. And um, I was traveling at the time with a group in Saskatchewan who said, well, why don't you stay here and write the book? And, uh, Saskatchewan, are you kidding me? No, no, I'm thinking maybe I'll go back to Sylvan Lake, which is where I'd been living. And they said, oh, no, you know, this is a great place to write a book. And uh, as it turned out, um, the limited budget that I had, I was able to buy a house in rural Saskatchewan for what I would have paid for renting mm. a small room anywhere else. Mm. So I bought the house with the idea that I would write the book, see how I liked it, and then make my way along my path in life. Well, I've been there 18 years, which is the longest I've been anywhere. Actually, probably the longest I've been if you combined it all in any place. Right, right. What led you to um, to writing a book? Did you have a, a background in creative writing? Um, well, the writing of a book, you know, sometimes you do things because you don't know you can't. Uh-huh. And, um, Ignorance is bliss. If, well, that or, you know, how hard can this be? <laughs> <laughs> the first book that I ever wrote, and I've written 29, 30 of them now. I'm just on book 31. And uh, several of them have gone what the kids would call viral. They're yeah. all over the world, and some of them are in 26 different languages. So, But the thing is that you're not going to find them at McNally Robinson. You're going to, uh, if you're in the field of community development, you'll know the name and you'll know the books. But the, I, the first book I ever wrote was with my colleague, Ann Smith, and it was called Ready, Willing, and Able. And it was about what does it take to get people together to help revitalize their communities. And we had been asked to write this. We were paid to write it. And um, Annie had two young children at the time. And we decided, well, we put aside 10 days to do this. Mm. And, of course, we procrastinated and procrastinated. And then we, you know, right up against the line. And we started to write this book. Well, honestly, I had no idea what it would take. But there was certainly, a, we burnt out two administrative assistants because neither of us typed very well. Mm. It was, you know, there were computers, but we didn't know how to use them. So we hand wrote the thing. <laughs> and the long story short is it took us a year and a half to write the book wow. that we thought would take us 10 days. Wow. And we swore we would never do that again. Like seriously, leave the right. writing to writers. Right. But the book was amazingly popular because it was just common sense. Here's the situation. This is what you do about it. And people loved it. So we were on to something. And the federal government uh, in those days, it was Department of HRDC, approached us to write a community self-help book. 
another one. And so we did. And those are the ones, the Community Development Handbook and the Partnership Handbook that just went all over the world. So it turns out that we're actually pretty good at this. And so over the years, that's one of the things I do. I write community self-help books. So what led you to caring about um, community development? Uh, Well, you know, I really like how you put that because I'm not sure that something leads you to anything. I believe I was born into it. Mm -hmm. The island that I mentioned that I was born on, Algonquin Island, was a residential island. It had a 99-year lease from the city of Toronto to be residential. And a few years into it, right at the time where people like my parents had invested everything they had to build their houses on this little island, uh, the city of Toronto reneged on their lease agreement. And here were all of these people with little families uh, who thought that they were there forever, who band together uh, to fight City Hall, like literally. In fact, they they were going to do that. And so my earliest memory of being a child was being in a high chair around the kitchen where all of these community people were meeting who cared so passionately about their community. So I don't know that it's anything you actually are conscious of. I just mm-hmm. know You're that I was it. I was born into it yeah. and have always cared cared very much about place, about people, about um, the fact that we can collectively and individually make a difference. Right. Storytelling is very important to you. Our story is very important. Yeah, ultimately, that's all we have is a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's the history story or the story of how we are, or the story of what we did, we are stories. We're stories in the making. So, yeah, ultimately, that's to me uh, one of the most important parts of understanding culture, of understanding belief, of understanding who we are and what's possible. And how much of the story goes into Oh, it's going to be a rather obtuse question, but how much does of the story goes into community development when you're considering? I mean, do you do you attempt to for the environment to reflect the story? You know, I normally like community development is a field that people, myself included, don't always completely understand. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to just say basically that it's how we evolve, right, mm-hmm. as a collective group, whether it's a geographic community or collective group of people so the the concept itself is a little bit vague but it is the story Mm -hmm. the um, you can use all sorts of business terms you might say look we're going to do an assessment or an environmental scan of this particular geographic location to find out about it but seriously all that is is the story Mm-hmm. What's going on? What's been happening? What happened before? What is it that you're really jazzed up about? What are you excited? What do you cherish mm-hmm. as a community? What do you cherish? What's non-negotiable? Quite often, people will start with what are the issues? What are the problems? And as a result, you focus your efforts on the problems. I really like to ask, what do you cherish? Mm-hmm. What in this community is unique or valuable or that you hold dear? And then how do you maintain that? as things evolve how do you hold on to those stories and those things that are important so to me community development um, is the story right. and it's just how you ask it hey it's kevin i hope you're enjoying the episode so far just a quick reminder that the sascapes podcast is available for free on your favorite podcast app or you can stream it from your browser. Check out the show notes for the link. 
On the Sascapes homepage, you'll notice something new under the logo called Sascapes Plus. You can't miss it. There's a big button saying support with a heart icon next to it. I'd love it if you could click on that button and help keep this podcast series going. When Sascapes launched in May 2014, it was the first podcast in the province celebrating arts, culture, and heritage. In fact, you'd have been pretty hard-pressed to find any Saskatchewan podcast. So I'd like to think that we paved the way. It's been because of your support that this podcast is now in its ninth year. Okay, that's it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. So... At what point in your story did the mayor of Meacham fall your way? <laughs> I fell my way about two years ago. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a story of uh, giving back. I have always been a firm believer that we, we need to volunteer, we need to contribute. As a matter of fact, I kind of like the days where there wasn't a term called volunteering. You just simply did what needed to be done because mm-hmm. that is what you could do. Mm-hmm. And some people can uh, build buildings and other people can do a great job of raising children or teaching children. Some people can do a fabulous job of uh, interviewing. Um, it just happens that there were enough people in my community that thought that I might be able to do a good job of pulling things together. So I agreed to do it. But you don't spend all of your time in, in Meacham. Um, your, your focus on community development has its tendrils um, all around the world, I dare say. Um, travel has been a huge part of your life. Well, yeah, the travel is how you get there. <laughs> you know, right. I, uh, my husband laughs because um, he doesn't know very many people who get Christmas presents from the staff on shops at airplane at airports. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a first name basis with a number of people right, right. who work at airports. Right, right. When I go through security, they oh hi Flo, where have you been? We haven't seen you for a few weeks. So um, yeah, travel is is part of it. Uh, the work is for me. Um, there are lots of people, I guess, who work what they would call internationally in different places. I, I choose and have been chosen to work in places where I find a common thread. The common thread of uh, my work happens to be primarily indigenous populations, people whose culture or whose um, way of being is eroding faster than they can absorb the changes. Mm, and it's eroding because... Uh, because things are happening faster, usually from the outside in rather than the inside out. So sometimes it's economic development, sometimes it's a change in technology. So I work, uh, you see if you can find the threads here, I work in the high Arctic in Nunavut. I work in the outback of Australia and I work with traditional Hawaiians in the Hawaiian Islands. Mm-hmm. I also work across northern Canada and uh, in communities where um, I suppose if you looked at it from the outside, you say the people are somewhat isolated. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't see it that way, but mm-hmm. um, so there's some commonalities in those places. But and as no, oh, and in South America too. <laughs> and it, but as fast moving as as the environment is for the indigenous people, it occurs to me that those people are so special because at the end of the day it is their oral history that defines and you and I share a love of Hawaii um, you know those cultures 
are founded on and cherish those stories being passed down from generation to generation. So does the world spinning rapidly by them um, disturb that? Well, I think, you know, the fact that they are oral cultures is important because they're storytellers by nature. That's the only way communication could occur, is face-to-face communication and telling of the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think for many people, the, um, the, the loss of identity comes from the loss of story. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a few years ago, I was um, in the outback of Australia, where people pride themselves in knowing their family line. They know their family story, and it goes back generations. They've been there 40,000, 50,000 years, Mm -hmm. and many of them know their whole story. But I I met this incredible tribesman who said to me, I must apologize to you. I only know 17 generations of my story. (laughs) And he was so embarrassed that he only knew 17 generations meaning the story of his grandfather, his great-grandfather, going back 17 years, what they did, what they believed, where they uh, had special gifts and talents, where they traveled, where their song lines were. Mm. So 17 was really short, very, very short knowledge of story, wow. uh, knowledge of country. Now, I've since then thought about the Western world and how many of us had any idea what our great-grandmother's maiden names were, mm. or what they liked, mm-hmm. or what they believed in. Mm-hmm. I don't. I know for myself, I, I certainly can't go back very far. Mm-hmm. And um, their idea of permanence and story is based on knowing that about themselves, where they've come from. So right. I don't know whether that answers your question in terms of does it change things when things go too quickly. Um, many of the cultural groups that I work with uh, really need to have a different kind of livelihood. Right. They can't hunt and gather anymore. They, they are being displaced many times by people who have the jobs and uh, they know that they need to do something. So it's not an un- unwillingness to change, it's trying to keep up. So here you are living in Western society, and you're you're so ensconced in in the communities globally and the indigenous people in those communities. How does that inform the way you move through life? Because we we do get caught up in this whirlwind of stuff and business and you talked a little bit about the simplicity of life Mm. um, and your value of that is that in is that influenced by what you observe when you travel yeah um that's a pretty deep question (laughs) and i'm going to try to respond to it my immediate reaction you know how when someone asks you something you're thinking the answer instead of listening Uh carefully to what you were asking but Uh my immediate response is it makes me more thoughtful Mm -hmm. Uh, Not in terms of being generous, but I think more clearly about uh, my own story and how we are all Indigenous people. We all came from somewhere, Mm -hmm. and we've all come from tribes and clans. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just that uh, in some locations things moved at a pace that we were able to keep up or seemingly have right. been able to keep up. And I know I keep saying that, but the, the, the question you ask is, what was the impact on how I am in my life? Well, I can tell you quite honestly, it slows me down mm-hmm. in a really good way. Mm-hmm. If left to my own devices, like f- many people I know thrive in the corporate world mm-hmm. and at that pace, I cannot. 
I wish not to. I suppose I could. I did it for a number of years. But I, my preference is to be able to be mindful yeah. uh, on a daily basis that, um, you know, the expression, the older I get, the less I know, mm-hmm. is absolutely true in my case. Because, you know, there was a time when I was younger, I knew a great deal. Right. You <laughs> I mean, thought, you thought, I thought I knew right. a great deal. And right. there's a, a funny story about the first time I was in Ecuador. And, you know, I was pretty young, and I had a nice, shiny background in community development and pretty well-respected. And off I go. I get a call from some colleagues and from the Canadian consulate saying, could I please come to Ecuador? Because they wanted to do a fair and equitable assessment of what we would now call little mini-micro-enterprises versus um, actually logging operations in the rainforest, and could I come? And now I declared right away some biases, mm-hmm. but I said, it doesn't mean I cannot do my job. Right. I just want you to know that, you know, I, I know quite a bit about mini micro ent- enterprises and, you know, depending on the context. And they said, no, no, come anyway. We'd like you to be part of the team. So away I went and I, my head was so swollen. My ego was so large. I don't know how I got on the airplane in the first place. But when I arrived in Quito, uh, I was invited to go out to Riobamba because there was a truck christening happening and I was invited to go and I did and while I was there the community was all around getting this 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 truck christened and which was a very big deal for a family to get a truck to own a truck was a very big deal so the whole community came out people came out to bless the truck and uh, so there I was and there was this older woman sitting beside me and she said oh hello you're that American and I said, well, no, actually, I'm Canadian. And she said, it's the same thing. I said, well, possibly, but not really. It's not the same place. And I was about to show her a little map when she said, she said, you know, she said, you look like a nice woman. I'm going to ask you something. She said, and because I think I can trust you, tell the truth. She said, what I hear about your country, how, how things are in that country, I can't believe is it true. And I have just glowed and said, oh, yes, it's a wonderful country, you know, where I come from. It's just wonderful. And she said, yeah, and I'll, I'll make the story a little bit short because, you know, the conversation went on for 40 minutes. But she basically said, was it true that we put our children in daycare centers in the basements of churches? And they came out and held on to a rope to smell the air. <laughs> then she asked, was it true that we put our elderly, our seniors, in buildings that looked like pigeon coops? They all stack in there all together, no babies, no mama, no papa, they just there, they play bingo. And I said, well, yeah, we have buildings like that. And she said, oh, she said, I, I read this, I cannot believe. She said, you people, she said, mama and papa both, you work outside your house, you work someplace, 40 hours every week. And I thought, oh my, and I said, you know, uh, 40 hour work week, most of us work 50 hours or more a week, but yeah, it takes two incomes. And she said, this you do because you do not own your house. You rent house or you have a mortgage or something like that. You gotta work this way, put baby in a basement, old people in a pigeonholes, because you wanna someday maybe own a house. And uh, at the time, and I thought, oh my goodness. And she said, so it's, just, it's not possible that this is true. 
And I said, well, you know, and at that time my son was in a daycare, and it was true, it was in the basement of a church, and my mother lived in a senior's home, it was just down the street from me, but nevertheless, and and I worked about 60 hours mm. a week, and and she said, well, if all this is true, she said, when you sing and when you dance, <laughs> and she said, from what I see, she say, you don't go dance with mama, papa, grandpa, babies. You go dance with young people in a bar somewhere, and baby is with some person sits on them. And she said, I, I don't understand. She said, you have nothing you do with your family. You don't own your house. You don't have grandma, grandpa. She say, so she say, this is not true, is it? And I said, well, you know, when you put it that way, it makes it sound like it's a bad thing. But yeah, it's true. And she said, I don't know how you can make something like that sound like a good thing. She says, so, she said, this is true from where you come, and you're here to help us. I'm so glad. <laughs> that was the end of our conversation. How do you even reply to that? Well, it was probably... You know, a pivotal time in mm-hmm. my in my young experience, and I am so grateful to that woman right. for that conversation because uh, there was no problem getting my head and ego back on right. the plane when I came home, right. and it changed absolutely how I view the world, how I look at community building, how I consider family, and I learned so much in that trip that ultimately uh, they paid me to do the work and I donated it back mm-hmm. to the community of Riobamba mm. uh, because there couldn't have been uh, any degree program that I would have learned more yeah. than I did from that conversation with that woman. Right. Wow. And I, I would expect that these communities that you're traveling to don't know a lot about Saskatchewan, if indeed Canada. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, if you try to describe ice to, and snow to people in the outback of Australia, of right. course, I always take uh, I always take pictures with me. I do a slideshow, and uh, these little children look at the little children up in Nunavut, and the kids up in Nunavut look at the little children uh, in the outback of Hawaii, and and so. Um, one day, a little boy in um, one of the communities I was working, he went out and he got a parante. That's a big uh, lizard, big. And uh, so this is a very right, this rite of passage. Uh, so everybody had to eat this lizard. They cooked it. And they said, well, where are the lizards up in where you are up in the north? And I showed them a picture, you know, like a, a round globe. And I, if you drill a hole, it's directly <laughs> the other side of the world. Right, and right. Exactly the mirror opposite. So I was trying to show them cold and snow, and I brought ice cubes and shaved them and put them on their face. And, and they say, you go outside that. And I go, yes. <laughs> you play that. And I go, yes. And they looked at me and they said, why you do that? <laughs> so uh, is it hard to explain Saskatchewan? Um, not really. They, you know, Mostly they understand agriculture, mm-hmm. and I can show them the different seasons. What they don't always understand is how far we drive in this province. Right. You know, driving two and a half hours for coffee, no problem. Right. And for them, you know, in many cases, that would be something you plan for for a week and uh-huh. pack a lunch and, you know, everybody goes. <laughs> so um, I talk a lot about Saskatchewan I, because I draw comparisons because people want to know where's my country, where's my home. And I'm always so proud to be able to say it's Saskatchewan. I would expect, apart from you being an expert at 
cooking giant lizard now, <laughs> you've probably picked up some pretty great recipes along the way. <laughs> you know, I have uh, over time. I, I actually, I love cooking, and I one of my downtime things is I watch cooking shows. Uh -huh, I was going to ask you. You know, what, I yes. do, um, and I spend a lot of time in kitchens watching people cook, so I, I know a little bit about it. The problem for me isn't the, the knowing how, it's having the time to mm -hmm, do it. Mm -hmm. Luxury in my life is having a few days at home, and because Meacham is, you know, 35, 40 minutes away from a store, mm -hmm. well, 15, but to get to the city is 40 minutes, I don't always have exactly the ingredients I need to cook. So for me, it's a real treat to go to the store and get the ingredients and come home and cook a meal and have a glass of wine and have company over and have a visit and, and get connected with what's going on in my world, in my community. Is there something that you cook that... Um, that you've learned from your travels? <laughs> many things, many things. Tell um, me about some of them. Well, I really do make a, a very good caribou stew. Uh, I don't run into a lot of caribou in Saskatchewan, right. but it can transfer very easily to mm -hmm. something else. I, uh, Bison? Well, sure, elk mm -hmm. or, you know, any wild meat is fine. Mm -hmm. I, um, and where did you learn the art of making caribou stew? <laughs> basic survival. <laughs> <I actually haven't. laughs> yeah, that's a that's a story in itself. Um, you know, the supply planes uh, and barges don't always come in on time, mm -hmm. and I have tremendous respect for people who know how to live on the land and mm -hmm. have always done that. Mm -hmm. What I find fascinating. Um, is that when you're there for a period of time, you learn to eat that way too, and everything else just tastes awful. Right. You know, um, I know that sometimes I crave apples mm -hmm. when I can't get them. Mm -hmm. But um, other than that, once you get in the rhythm with the geography that you're in, the, the food is just easy because it's what's, it's what's there. Is it a bit of a culture shock? I mean, I, I know you're coming back to uh, a small town in Meacham, but to come back to this hemisphere after being away, does, does is there that kind of, uh, when you land in the airport, does everything yeah. seem... Well, you know, thanks for asking that, because I've given some thought over the years, and the first thing when I get off an airplane, the first thing that hits me is the smell of wherever I am. Uh -huh. Now, you know from getting off the plane in Hawaii, you, you, yeah. the first thing that hits you is the air. Absolutely. The aloha. Yeah. And it's just incredible. And when you get off the plane in Alice Springs, the first thing that it hits you is the heat and the air. When I get off the plane, and you know, anywhere, but in Kaluit, um, the Christmas of the air, I smell the place more than I actually recognize anything else. It's the smell of the air, the feel of the air. But, you know, in Saskatchewan, when you get off, you go into an airport. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing that you smell is the construction site. Right. Right. But I think your question was more about uh, the transition from one place to the other. The place that's no most notable is I have more clothes in my life than anybody really needs. And it's because I have between 18 and 26 seasons a year. Sure. And you would think hot weather translates to the same clothing. Well, it doesn't because mm -hmm. hot in Hawaii is different than hot in Alice Springs. Mm -hmm. And the way people dress, you know, if you're, if you're being paid to do the work, you want to be respectful in what you wear. And so my transition, the, I guess one of the strangest times in traveling, I had four suitcases packed to go to four different destinations and there was such a quick turnaround in them that they had all been packed a month earlier for the different places. One of the planes was late 
And so I was a little behind. My husband had to drive to the airport and change suitcases. I came out of security, gave him my suitcase, took the other suitcase, got back on the plane and went to another place. And so I think the transition for me has a lot to do with clothing. More than food, it has to do with clothing and it has to do with time zones, you know. And uh, plus not overpacking. Well, no, I... Did you give up on that? Well, you know, it depends. Yeah. It depends. If I'm gone for a month, I'm gone for a month. Right. You know, um, but mostly I pack reasonably well. It's just that I never, I actually have lives in these places that I go. I don't just drop in. As a matter of fact, to me, I think it's one of the privileges in, in my work is that I get to stay and I get accepted and adopted by families, communities. Mm -hmm. And so I actually, my husband laughs about this and my friends do because I have a whole set of friends and a whole life uh, in three or four different places where people don't actually know that I don't live there. They think I go to baby showers, you know, I mm. go to the Tupperware party, I do whatever it yeah. is. And people will say, Flo, where have you been? We haven't seen you for a long time. Wow. You've been away, as if that's where I'm right. supposed Isn't to be. Right, that wonderful? So it's quite a different, uh, it's a different way of viewing the world because most people, and I think in Saskatchewan, it's a very place-based province. Right. People are from here. Yeah. Uh, if they're not from here, they're from 40 miles away, or their grandfather or grandmother was from here. Hence fromness. The fromness. Right. So uh, for some of us, though, uh, the fromness is not just, oh, I've been somewhere, but mm -hmm. I actually live somewhere. You have many I'm, homes. I have many homes and many families. My, um, I just actually had a text from my ohana in Hawaii that's family. Uh, saying, what time is your plane coming? You know, this is what we're having for supper. To, you know, we'll see you at supper. Isn't that amazing? And, uh, so Tell me poi isn't on the menu. Oh, it's always on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> it's Hawaii. <laughs> right. It's always on the menu. Right, right. When you're back in Meacham, apart from your love of all things in the kitchen, um, are there any other, I mean, obviously you continue to write, um, yeah. any other creative aspects to your life? Oh, sure. Um, music? Well, obviously, yeah. I've been involved with music industry since I was a kid, mm -hmm. um, since the days of Don Messer and the Islanders on the island. But, uh, yeah, I do some, uh, some work with a colleague. We do some music promotion. We do some mid-range tours. Uh, with some pretty amazing people. Uh, my husband and I were found one of the original um, founders of our local museum, and that's an amazing thing. We helped organize Centennial, and one of the things we wanted as a result of Centennial was to have uh, a museum. Right. We also have been quite active in our dinner theater at the community level, and uh, I'm really privileged in my client group to have, I think, probably all of the cultural organizations at one time or another, most of them, I've had the privilege of working with them too. So my whole life is creative. Oh, and I paint and I, um, I sing. I have a group of women I sing with. So, you know, lots of things. And your and your children, do they carry any kind of a creative streak or, or interest in, in your community development passion? Well, you know, uh, my son is, uh, he lives in Nanaimo, and he is um, one of the organizers of Tribal Journeys, which is the, uh, the building of the old historic um, First Nation canoes that go from community to community potlatching. 
He's um, on the board of directors and helps with the 24-7 all-weather shelter. And so, yeah, he's always been involved in that. He also has a bit of background in theater. Mm-hmm. And just to level that out, carpentry. You know, right. so there's the practical side and then there's the creative side. So. And his love of storytelling, no doubt, was influenced by the environment in which he grew up with you, Ab- much like absolutely, yours. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. He remembers being a little kid in a coffee house sitting on the stage with a bunch of other little kids and they mm-hmm. had their blankets and their pillows. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, they were on the other side of the amplifiers so that there was no problem with... But in, in those days, there was no such thing uh, in my world as a babysitter. You took your kids where you went. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of grew up sleeping on piles of coats at dances and at concerts and things like that. So right. I think you're, you know, you're what you are accustomed to. Mm-hmm. You're, the museum in Meacham um, has a specific focus around storytelling as well. It does. Um, it, it does. There's two things, three things, I guess, that are a little special about our museum. You know, they're all special, mm-hmm. you know, because they're a collection of people's artifacts, and with the artifacts come the stories. But we've done three things that are a little bit different. Uh, one of the things is that we actually have a storytelling center where people can come and we say, look, we don't want you to bring the things and give them to us. We have nowhere to store them. But bring the thing and tell the story of it. And we record it. And so we have little uh, tapes of people actually telling the story. And they, they sometimes come prepared to tell one thing, but they find they tell something different. So it's a storytelling center. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing that's a little special is, is um, our interest and love of Lego. And uh, I think you might be interviewing my husband. I will. Uh, he's a Lego wizard and actually belongs to an international adult community of Lego designers and builders. And so we build Lego into the things we do at the museum, which incidentally attracts children. And children love the museum. Mm-hmm. They come not just because of Lego, they love it because they're welcome there. And we have a group called the Junior Curators. They're the only ones that I'm aware of in the province. Sass Culture got pretty excited about the Museum mm-hmm. Association because mm-hmm. they're little, you know, the youngest five, the oldest ten years old, and they're the ones who are going to tour you when you come to the museum, mm. and they get certified, and they train each other, and it's their museum. And I love it when they say, it's our museum because it's our story too. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Picking up on that theme, we could easily sit here for two hours and talk about the troubled generation that, that, we're, that we're faced with now. But tell me what, what hope, what, what, what inspires you about this generation now? What are the positive things that this generation has that, that, um, that may be similar or similar to past generations but now look differently because of the times Mm. and technology that we're dealing with. Yeah, you know I think it's really easy to disregard or disrespect an entire generation Mm -hmm. based on changes or things that are different. As a matter of fact, I'm one of the the children of the 60s who perhaps was disregarded uh, by older people because of our long-haired freakiness. But but, you know we weren't part of um, the the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Not that there wasn't there, it was mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. But we were more about social justice. Mm-hmm. And then behind us came a group that were more about the party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think generations come like waves. 
And the wave that I see coming right now are such incredibly inspired young people. I'm, inc I, I'm very, very optimistic. If you'd asked me a few years ago, I would have said I'm nervous. Mm -hmm. I'm nervous because garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. right? There didn't seem to be. Now, I'm going to make a distinction, too, because we really focus on, I think, when we look at young people, we focus on urban environments. Mm -hmm. And I spend a lot of my life in the north and in rural environments where kids are different. You know, they're not as... Um, they're not as easily distracted, mm -hmm. and many of them have a clear place in their family, and they have uh, a real good understanding of who they are and what they can be. But generally speaking, and in a, in a somewhat global perspective, and I can't say that I travel everywhere in the world, mm -hmm. but I certainly spend a lot of time with young people, and I'm and completely, completely comfortable with the fact that they can connect globally. They're not good at it yet, mm -hmm. but we have the technology. Mm -hmm. And I believe this generation coming now are ones that have in their, in their hearts, it's almost like it's hardwired for survival. Mm -hmm. And they're not as pessimistic. They're more of a can-do group, and they're well-educated, many of them. And those, and I don't mean necessarily in school, mm -hmm. but they're well-educated in terms of the value of their planet. They're well educated in the sense of they're 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 colorblind. Mm -hmm. They don't see races or different religions as being a threat to them. Mm -hmm. They can embrace some of the differences. And um, in my travels, I spend an awful lot of time hanging out in parks and around youth hostels. You know, it mm -hmm. just happens that they're in the inner cities and or inner parts of communities. So I talk with a lot of young people. And you know, they're traveling the world and they're not doing it to get a kick. They're not doing it to, you know, enhance their um, saleability. They're doing it because they care deeply about each other, they care about the planets. And every one of them has, that I've spoken with, and I would say literally, I'm going to say hundreds, mm -hmm. could be thousands, but I, I know for sure hundreds of them, there's a common thread. And it's a sense that, yeah, things aren't the way they should be, but we can make a difference. And some of them are little anarchists, you know. I had one young fellow came up to me and uh, and said to me, "Are you an anarchist?" <laughs> <laughs> and I had to think about it a little bit. And I said, "Well, I suppose." I said, "Well, you teach workshops, don't you?" And I said, "Yes, I do." And he said, "Your name's Flo Frank." And I said, "Yes, it is." He said, do you think you could do a workshop on anarchy for us? And I said, "You know, I can't see why not." Um, you know, just because I don't know a great deal about, you know, where you're at or what you're doing. And he said, but isn't that what you do? You help people get from where they are to where you want where they want to be? And I said, where is it you want to be? Like, is this anarchy? Are you thinking about it in a criminal way or in a violent way? And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, no. He said, we have to be anarchists because we have to change the system. And we believe that we can. We just want to go about it the right way. And I said, all righty. I said, I'll, I'll do what I can to help. And he said, well, we're willing to pay you. And I said, well, you'll have to because nothing's for nothing. Right. And he said, well, what do you charge? And I said, it depends. How much money have you got? And he said, well, not very much. And I said, do you have gardens? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I work for carrots. Oh, and I wow. said, so I'd like some produce from your garden. And I'd like you to be able to, uh, at the end of the work we do, I'd like you to stay in touch with me. How about that for payment? Wow. And I stayed in touch with him for four or five years now. 
and every once in a while I'll get a check for $25, $30. Oh. Or every once in a while there'll be some carrots at my doorstep. Oh. And it's my anarchists, you know. So, you know, do I have hope for them? You bet I do. Yeah, I do. And I have hope for the rural kids, the way they look at the farm. And, yeah, lots of them are leaving the farms. We hear about that, but we don't hear about the ones that are staying. Mm -hmm. And we have so many families in our neighborhoods who are just, I think, so dedicated to their families and so dedicated to the agriculture industry. Whatever it is that their families have done for a long time, they're still doing it. Those are the ones we need to focus on. Right. I'm going to ask you a very, very cruel and difficult question to answer, but um, I'm going to hearken back to some a comment you made early on in our discussion and when you were talking about what we cherish. Mm. If I were to ask you to narrow it down to, let's pick a random number, say the top three things that you cherish. Mm. Um, yeah, that's right when you distill it all down to, you know, to, to the essence of what you cherish, what would those things be? Well, you know, for me, that's really straightforward. Okay, good. Yeah, uh, it is. And it's not because I spend a lot of time thinking about it. I think for all of us, it's who we are. Um, what I cherish absolutely is our environment, our space, our place, the air, the water, everything around us. I, I cherish that. In my world, it's non-negotiable. Um, the second thing are two. It's a twofer. I cherish our rights and our responsibilities. So some people might call that freedom, but I think that with rights uh, come responsibility, and I cherish those, the fact that we have them, the fact that we have rights and with it we have responsibilities. I absolutely cherish that. And I guess I cherish learning in every form, in every way. I... Um, you know, I could go on about, oh, and I cherish my family, but you know, mm-hmm. those are basically mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it narrows down to the, the place we inhabit, the, the planet, the galaxy, I suppose, but the planet, uh, that with it come responsibilities and rights and freedoms and uh, the need to care for and about each other, not just people, you know, about the whole thing. And, and the fact that we should constantly embrace uh, and cherish the fact that we are able to learn and that we're willing to. That's about it. Because there are pockets of this world that do not have those things. Yeah, there they really are. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, the one thing that um, we do a lot of work on this planet, I guess, in groups and church groups do a lot of work to try to eradicate poverty. And I think that poverty itself is something that um, by definition is different. In every culture it's different. So in some cases, if your basic needs are met, uh, does that make you poor? Mm-hmm. If you be- some of the happiest, healthiest families, communities I've ever seen, by our standards, would be considered poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, they're independent, they're interdependent, they are full of relationships and stories and pride and fear and all of those things. It's the fabric of humankind. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I think that uh, the responsibility we have is to keep what we can of the things that matter and change gracefully and graciously the things that we can and to help others do the same. That's very well put. Um, Much like the question you asked your young anarchists, um, 
where do you want to go? Where do you want to be from here? You've accomplished <laughs> so much. I, I get the sense that you're you're a person that doesn't have an end goal, but no. if if you could say at the end of it all, looking back, I'd like mm. to say that. Ah, uh, well, you know that's easy too. Okay. Uh, and this comes from my grandmother. Uh, she used to say, you know, the only thing that matters in life when you look back is did you make a positive difference? So do I have an end goal? Um, you know, I have dreams and hopes, but I, I don't, you know, I don't need a game plan. I've been very fortunate that what I, uh, what comes to me uh, is what I enjoy. And it's, it's not a deliberate thing. It just, I've been very fortunate that way. I do what I love. I love what I do. Um, and the, the end, does it matter? Does it make a difference? to me is ultimately what we all should be thinking about. Mm -hmm. In the end, did we make a positive difference mm -hmm. to one person, to one thing, to one place, or to a whole planet? It doesn't matter. You do know that you are already. <laughs> you know, I, I believe I do in uh, the same way as everybody else does. Mm -hmm. We all do what we can do. And I don't think that because I get to travel the world or that I get to work with such amazing people uh, and live in such an amazing province, I don't think that I'm different or even better than anything or anybody else because I've met people who you might think, gee, there's really no hope for that person mm. and they're making a difference every day mm -hmm. in their own lives. Some of the people that I work with struggle with mental health issues or with really serious uh, addictions or violence or histories that are so horrific that how they get up every morning is beyond my comprehension. And yet, you know, to a person, to every single one of them, I think that there's never really a day goes by that they don't have some positive impact on somebody somewhere even if it's just staying alive and, and doing the little things. So, you know, it sounds very Pollyannish, but some of the most simple truths in the world are based on um, stepping a little bit beyond our comfort zone. Mm. And I think we all need to do a bit more of that. No one will ever accuse you of living life on the surface. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, you know, there's days that I think, boy, I sure like to just be, uh, you know, something... Um, well, I, I was going to be say something derogatory, but you know, maybe it's not something superficial. Something superficial, or but I don't think there's flying a lot, under the radar. Well, I don't think there's a lot of things in the world that are superficial, mm -hmm. but I think there are certainly sometimes, and I've actually done this where I, you know, I'm either in a hotel or at a home, and I just hide in a book, mm -hmm. or watch TV, or I just actually right now today I'm watching clouds. Mm -hmm. I'm watching beautiful Saskatchewan <clears throat> summer clouds, and I'm watching a storm build. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, to me, uh, to me, that's the most important thing I could be doing today. Mm -hmm. And after we're finished with our interview, I'm going to go take pictures of the crops mm -hmm. when I drive home. That unmistakable canola against <laughs> the sky and the flax coming the out. Flax. So yeah, so I don't know. Uh, do I want to do something? I don't know, less or different. Mm -hmm. You know, if I did, I'd do it. Sure. You know, everybody has, op not everybody, but I certainly have options. I could, uh, when I was a little girl, I was always told I could be or do anything I wanted to. Mm. And uh, what a great way to move through life. Oh, absolutely. And so sometimes I ponder, I wonder, what would it be like mm -hmm. if I'd you know, been in a farm family? Or what would it be like if I was in a different culture, or in a different country? Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't wonder it in the sense of wanting to change it. Mm. I just ponder it. 
I'm 100% content with what I do, and how much of it I do, where I do, and what difference it makes. Always open to the opportunity. Always, yeah, yeah always. And um, I'd like a little bit more time, I think, um, fishing. Ah, where's your favorite fishing hole <laughs> in Saskatchewan? Uh, it's not in Saskatchewan, actually. Okay. Uh, my very favorite fishing hole is Nootka Sound on Vancouver Island, mm. a little place called Critter Cove. Mm. And I go two, three times a year, big salmon fishing. So it's about 25 miles out in the ocean. It's a place called Critter Cove, and then another 25 miles out further. So what's one of my pleasures is to fish. And you've had some good catch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh yes <laughs> now that's what I bring home to Saskatchewan everybody has the thing uh-huh. that they do I don't make paraje I don't uh, I don't make hummus I don't even grow a garden this year but you know what I bring home salmon <laughs> right so people are very glad when they see me uh, going on the off chance that it, it might be that I'm going fishing <laughs> which I will be at the end of August I get the sense you don't suffer fools gladly <laughs> No, I don't. That's an old expression, mm-hmm. and uh, no, I don't. Mm-hmm. To be, you know, and I, I guess I don't suffer uh, apathy uh-huh. gladly. Uh-huh. You know, fool is an interpretive thing. You know, you can interpret something in some way that is maybe not right. But apathy is something. Apathy and laziness. I have a real hard time with those ones. You're neither. I, <laughs> if if you ever wake up one day and wonder if you're apathetic uh. or lazy, I'm here to tell you that you are not. Well, thank you, Kevin. You're very kind. I knew from the minute we spoke on the phone that it was going to be a pleasure meeting you, and my suspicion has now been confirmed. You're one heck of a person, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> You're very kind, and I appreciate having uh, you know this little bit of time to, to speak with you. And it seems that we've gotten very philosophical. Yeah. You bring that out in people. And, I do. And I like that. That's a gift. It's a real gift. There's a, you know, we sometimes in Saskatchewan we think, well, the gift is hard work. Mm-hmm. Let's just roll up our sleeves and do the thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I really have enjoyed my time with you today because you, you bring the ponderance to it. You bring the philosophical ponderance. For that, I'm grateful. Thank you. And because of our love of Hawaii, I say to you, mahalo. Ah, well, mahalo, aloha, and uh, do travel well. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Sascapes podcast is created by Kevin Power as part of the Culture Days Animata program operated by Sass Culture. Funding to the cultural sector is provided through the Saskatchewan Lotteries Trust Fund for Sports, Culture and Recreation. If you want to hear more of these podcasts or to see the great work being done by other Sass Culture animateurs, please visit www.iheartculture.ca. Special thanks to Paved Arts in Saskatoon for their technical support. Sascapes podcasts are also available through the iTunes Store. Music for Sascapes is provided by Saskatchewan-born singer-songwriter Jeffrey Straker. There is no end to the stories to be told. So, until next time...